The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 in the Pew Bible. It's page 1002. We have seen in the past few weeks that Jesus is supreme. In chapter 1, we saw that Jesus is the divine Son through whom God created the world. He is the heir of all things. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. We read that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. An amazing truth when you stop to think about it. Right now, the life of every person in this room and in this entire world is being sustained by Christ's mighty word. And that's true for the whole creation. The very universe is sustained in its existence by Jesus Christ. Every molecule and atom is held together by Christ. No wonder we saw in chapter 1 that Jesus is vastly superior to the angels. No wonder that the angels all worship Jesus. But then in addition, we saw in chapter 2 that Jesus was not ashamed to take on our humanity, to become a man, to make purification for sins. We read in chapter 2, verse 10, that it was fitting that God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. And chapter 2 closed with the comforting and consoling truth that Jesus has become our merciful and faithful high priest, that he made propitiation for the sins of the people, and that he is able to help us in temptation because he himself has suffered when tempted. And now we begin a new section of Hebrews where Jesus is compared and contrasted to Moses and then eventually to Joshua. So we want to hear God's word, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. Father, may your word sink deep into our hearts. We would see Jesus, his grace, his sufficiency to save, and to keep us to the end, we pray. Amen. Nothing in the place of Jesus. 
Throughout church history, the people of God have been tempted to substitute something else for Jesus Christ as our only Savior, our only hope. It is no surprise that one of the five so-called solas of the Reformation was sola Christos, Christ alone. In that day and age, the church had substituted ceremonies and good works and even indulgences for purchase to add to the way of salvation, which is only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And the reformers cried out that by adding all these man-centered additions, the gospel itself was being obscured. Here in Hebrews 3, we learn that a similar danger was with the early church. Here we find Jesus compared and contrasted to Moses. Apparently, the church being addressed in this letter had a strong Jewish Christian element, and these Jewish Christians naturally had a high regard for Moses. Now, Moses was a great servant of God, we know, and mightily used by God, but he must never detract from Christ. If I were to give you children in the room a pop quiz on Moses and ask you to list 10 things about his life, you could probably, you could probably do it. You would maybe start with Moses being a little baby in that reed boat in the Nile and being saved by a princess, and then Moses being raised as a prince of Egypt, or Moses famously meeting God in the burning bush, or Moses throwing down his staff and it turned into a snake, or Moses confronting Pharaoh with the plague sent by God, or the scene of Moses dividing the Red Sea by the power of God, or Moses receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. That's seven out of ten. You parents can ask him for, for three more items on the way home today. In fact, you probably know that it was Moses who wrote the first five books of the Bible. So Moses was very important, but it seems from our text that the very real spiritual danger for these believers was somehow to put Moses and Old Testament ceremonies on an equal par almost with Jesus as the object of their faith and confidence. It appears from chapter 1 that they were in danger of doing that with the angels, and now we see that they face that same, same temptation with Moses. And so we want to see from our text this morning three main points. Number one, an encouragement based on who we are and where we are headed. Number two, an exhortation to keep our faith fixed on Christ alone. And number three, the, the, the necessity of holding fast to our confession of Christ. So first, an encouragement based on who we are and where we are headed. This is verse 1 and 2. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Notice, that the writer begins by reminding them of their highly privileged position in Christ. They are holy brothers. They are people who have been made holy by Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 3, we saw that Jesus is the one who made purification for sins. In other words, he cleanses us from our sins by his death on the cross in our place. And so in chapter 2, verse 11, we read the phrase, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. The word sanctify has the same root meaning as make holy. Jesus makes his people holy once and for all by his blood. 
even though in this life Christians still struggle with remaining sin. But we are forgiven, we are cleansed, we are positionally sanctified, made holy in Jesus Christ. That's why we are all holy brothers and sisters in Christ. We are set apart by God by the cleansing work of Jesus. But not only that, these Christians are those who were told in verse 1, share in a heavenly calling. What an encouraging truth. They live in this present evil age, but they are bound for heaven. Their true citizenship is in heaven. We find that this is a constant theme throughout this book. In chapter 10, verse 35, even if these believers are so persecuted, we read, as to lose possibly all their earthly possessions, we read that they have, quote, a better possession and an abiding one, which is great reward, we're told. Chapter 11, verse 16, Christians are those who desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In chapter 12, verse 22, it's even expanded. I can get another amen, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. What a picture! What a picture of the heavenly Jerusalem. And then in chapter 13, verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So we see this theme come out again and again in the book. Those who have come to trust in Jesus Christ are holy and they share in a heavenly calling. The word in in verse one is actually the plural form, sharers or companions in heavenly calling. It has the sense of band of brothers, we might say. Stop and think about it. Think about what a fundamentally different perspective Christians have about our lives in this world. We are set apart to God by the work of Christ and together bound for heaven. That's the encouragement. What a wonderful thing that is. It's like Revolutionary War soldiers who suffered through that long, cold winter at Valley Forge. We know that some of them just had tattered clothes, almost nothing to wear, and some of them didn't have shoes, and it was freezing cold in their log huts. But for the rest of their lives, they were formed by that experience. You could say they were, in a sense, set apart. And so we have been formed by being united to Jesus Christ by faith and looking forward to one day seeing him face to face. We have a heavenly calling. And so the author begins by encouraging them with these words. But secondly, an exhortation to keep our faith fixed on Jesus Christ alone. That's the second part of verse 1 and verse 2. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. The NIV has the word consider translated, fix your thoughts. In Luke chapter 12, the same word is used when Jesus says, consider the ravens and consider the lilies of the field. In other words, contemplate, notice in a spiritual sense, give thoughtful attention to Jesus. Remember the context here. These 
professing believers are somehow on the verge of actually forgetting Jesus' central role in their salvation and and almost putting something else in his place. They are in danger of drifting into a focus on angels or Moses or ceremonial regulations. And so the author puts before them in clear terms the unique person and work of Jesus here and throughout the book. And he summarizes Jesus' work in verse 1 as this phrase, the apostle and high priest of our confession. An apostle is a sent one, a messenger, someone who represents God to the people, someone who brings God's message or word as Jesus was sent by God into this world as Savior. He's the apostle. It's the only place in the New Testament is that Jesus Christ is given this title, apostle. But Jesus also is a high priest, someone who represents people in the presence of God. And so the letter will will unfold this high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ on our behalf. But notice that verse 2 goes on to emphasize Jesus' faithfulness in fulfilling this ministry. He was faithful to him who appointed him, to God who appointed him for this ministry. And it's done so by comparing him to Moses. It says, just as Moses, who was also faithful in all God's house. Here we see that the author is not negative about Moses. Moses was used by God. He states that Moses was basically faithful in what God called him to do. Moses wasn't without sin. He wasn't like Jesus Christ. He wasn't God and man like Christ was, but he was a faithful servant of God. But he says in that same way, Jesus was faithful. There's a comparison there. But that's where the comparison ends because in verses 3 through the beginning of verse 6, we see the great contrast between Jesus and Moses. Just listen as I read these verses, starting at verse 3. Listen to the contrasts that are drawn. Verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Quite a difference. The author is saying, yes, Moses was used by God. He was faithful, but there is no comparison between Moses and Jesus Christ. Moses was a servant. Jesus was the son. Moses was a servant in God's house. That mean, that phrase in God's house is a metaphor for the people of God. Moses was part of the Old Testament people of God. He was a servant. He was really the foremost servant at that time in the people of God, leading them and so forth. But Jesus is over God's house, and he was the builder of the house. He redeemed and purchased the people of God and made them into the house of God. Jesus is not merely in God's house. He is over God's house as a son. Maybe you've been to see the house falling waters by the architect Frank Lloyd Wright, and you uh, have seen its beauty and design. Well, which is greater, the house or the architect and builder of the house? Well, obviously the builder of the house. Which is greater, a servant or a son? Well, we know the answer. 
Jesus is the builder of the house. In verse 3, Jesus has been counted worthy of much more glory than Moses. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 10, when the apostle Paul is there commenting on the difference between the glory of the giving of the Mosaic law compared to the full revelation of the gospel in Christ, he states the contrast this way. Listen to how dramatic it is. Even though, even though we know there was glory in the Old Testament giving of the law and it was for our good, he says, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Do you see the great contrast? The glory of the full blazing revelation of Jesus Christ makes the shadows not glorious at all. The Old Testament, all the ceremonies and all the things that pointed to Christ, they had a glory, but it's as if they had no glory at all once you see the full glory of Christ. It's like if the moon and the sun are in the sky at the same time, you don't even see the moon. The sun is so glorious. In other words, it's not as if we trust both Moses and Jesus for our salvation. No, we trust Jesus Christ alone. He alone is the God-man who did all that was necessary as God's mighty apostle and high priest of our redemption. Do you see what this exhortation is calling Christians to? Consider Jesus Christ, not in the sense that I might say, consider, do you want pizza or a hot dog for lunch? No, not at all like that. It's, it's seriously fixing your thought on Jesus Christ alone. If you have come to put your trust in him, do not be led astray to start placing your trust in anything or anyone else. Do not start trusting in the place of Christ any pastor, any priest, any religious figure in the world, any spiritual guru. Do not start trusting any other possible object of faith. Beware of resting in good works or religious ceremonies or creeds. Do not trust in any of the ordinances of this church or any church as though they have saving power. Don't trust your baptism or the fact that you take the Lord's Supper. It is Jesus alone who saves. Do not trust any philosophy. Do not even trust your knowledge of God's own holy word. Your knowledge doesn't save you even though knowledge is important. And don't even trust your subjective experiences of God. Although it is vital that you come to turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and saving faith. But don't look back on a special experience with God as if that experience in and of itself is somehow what you trust in. This passage makes it very clear that as much as Moses and his ministry were from God and clearly faithful, yet In no way must Moses or any human detract from the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ. In a minute, we're going to sing a hymn. Now, don't get too excited because I still have one more point yet. But the hymn has the phrase in it that you probably all know very well. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. I actually sang that song for a number of years without fully understanding what was meant by the sweetest frame. It just sounded like a nice phrase, and it rhymed with name, so it was good. 
But in the early 1800s, when the hymn was written to experience a sweet frame, was to have a deep and moving subjective experience of God's love in Christ. In other words, a sweet frame is a good thing. It's not wrong. The Christian life has many ups and downs. Sometimes we feel close to God and sometimes we we feel very dull and distant from God. Our frames, so to speak, can be up or down. Maybe you can look back on what we might call a mountaintop experience, a time that you felt very close to God, maybe when a particular sermon was preached or a hymn was sung or at a retreat or at a seminar or some private devotional life you were having in, in, at, at one point in your life, maybe in a time of suffering. There's actually a very famous frame, a very famous sweet frame account by Jonathan Edwards, the well-known pastor and theologian of New England in the colonial period. He writes in his journal as a young man of a time in which he was praying in the woods, and he was almost overcome by a sense of the loving presence of God in Christ, and by, as he called it, a sweet sense of the sovereignty of God. And many have written about that experience and talked about that. A profound experience. But here's the point. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. Do you hear what that hymn is saying? That's the same thing that the book of Hebrews is saying here and applying it to anything or anyone else. We must not even trust our own experiences with God, looking back on them as if that's the basis of our assurance or our status with God. No, As wonderful as those experiences may have been, we trust Jesus only. And so when the writer exhorts us, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the point is that you and I must keep refocusing our thoughts and our trust on the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. That is the way ahead in the Christian life. That is to be our daily goal to Satisfy our hearts in Jesus, to trust in him, to love and adore him, to obey him, to fear him. That is one of the primary ways we guard our hearts against Satan's accusations and attacks and designs. Jesus died for us. He was raised for us. He lives for us. He strengthens us. He is coming again for us. We will see him again. He is at the center. Our spiritual eyes must remain on him. And as we get spiritually distracted and tempted by many other false saviors and empty counterfeit loves, we come again and again to turn our gaze in faith upon our blessed Lord Jesus in whom we stand alone. And this brings us to our final point the necessity of holding fast to our confession of Christ. This comes from the end of verse 6. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Interesting verse. And throughout Hebrews, we're going to see a number of warnings like this. Here we see the great importance of fixing our thoughts on Jesus Christ and persevering in the faith. And every genuine believer will, in fact, persevere in saving faith. That's the basic truth of Scripture, and that's built into the logic of this verse. When the author says, and we are his house, 
He's speaking about belonging to the people of God. Truly. There's the visible church, but there's also the invisible church, the true church of God, we would say in that sense. We are his house means that we are a part of the body of Christ. But he says in the second part, if we hold fast our confidence, our confession. This verse must be understood in light of the overall teaching of Scripture about what we call the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, or as it's often called, the eternal security of those who are born again. The Word of God teaches two balancing truths, and we could summarize these two truths in two words, certainty and necessity. And this verse is dealing with necessity, but let me first describe certainty. You, you know this doctrine well. It's what we sang in our hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. It's certain that everyone who genuinely believes in Jesus Christ will persevere to the end. He will hold me fast. What a blessed truth. We all know that we persevere in faith faith because God keeps us and he keeps us true to himself and be- believing in him. An example of this is 1 Peter 1.5. We are guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice, God is the one who guards us and the instrument by which he does that is he keeps us through faith until the last time. What assurance? It's ultimately God who keeps his people by enabling them to persevere in faith in Christ. Without that keeping power of God, not one of us would stand. That's the certainty we have. But the balancing truth of Scripture is what we find in this verse and in many places in the New Testament. Necessity. It is necessary for every believer to persevere to the the end in saving faith in Jesus Christ. The end, the end of that verse may not seem, it may seem somewhat strange, our boasting in our hope. He's not talking about an empty boasting. He says, he's talking about confidence and hope there is describing the content of our hope. Our boasting in our hope, we might translate that along the lines that the hope denotes the content of our hope, which is the person and work of Christ. Our faith, our confidence, our boasting is in Jesus and what he has done and who he is and nothing else. And this teaching about necessity is important too because it guards us, the visible church, it guards us all against presumption. Jesus tells the parable of the sower. We know that there's seed that fell on good ground and it produced fruit, but there's also seed that fell on the path or fell on the rocky ground or in the thorns and those seeds don't bring forth fruit. There's a warning there to the visible church. The Bible is warning about the need to persevere and guard someone from thinking something like this. Oh, I made a profession of faith when I was young, and so I know I'm fine eternally with God. I can live how I want to. I can disregard Jesus Christ and his word. I don't need the people of God. I can commit whatever sin I desire because I'm forgiven, and I have fire insurance, so to speak, from that long-ago experience. Or someone else might think, I can attend church and go through all the motions and yet live a godless life on the inside Or someone might think, I can trust my baptism, or I can trust the religious ceremonies of our church, or I can trust my charitable contributions. 
You see what this doctrine is saying? In all of this, there's no real present looking to Jesus Christ if you have that attitude. There is no present fruit. Now, we know that Scripture tells us only God knows the heart. But this is a very serious warning, and these warnings will become more clear throughout the book to the visible church because we don't know our hearts. Yes, every spiritually-minded believer is painfully aware of his or her weaknesses and sins, our little faith, our dullness of heart. But this warning concerns the very center, the very heart of faith, the very basic fruit, which is an act of faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That's the necessity. If we are not trusting in Christ, if that hope of the gospel in Christ is not the pole star of our hearts and lives, then our assurance ought to be shaken. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because that's the fundamental way Christians persevere, by holding to Christ. So both certainty and necessity are true. Scripture teaches both of them. One comforts us. One rightly and helpfully warns us. Now, for those of you in our midst who have a sensitive conscience, and I've talked to many of you in our midst who struggle with assurance The main message of Scripture that you need to hear is that of certainty. God sovereignly and powerfully keeps his people through all temptations and trials of this life. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's certainty. But those within the visible church also need this word of warning. And maybe there are some of you here this morning who need to hear this about the necessity of continuing in faith. We are his house if we hold fast our confidence. Maybe you are being led astray to think of Jesus as just a good man, maybe just a prophet, as the various religions of the world might say, or maybe holding to Jesus as somehow a good teacher or an example, but not as the only Savior from sin and death and hell. Then you maybe need to hear this warning that you need to persevere in faith in Jesus as the Savior and the God-man. We will learn more about perseverance in the rest of chapter 3, but I hope that you see clearly that the way to come to Christ And the way to stand in Christ is to keep your heart fixed on Christ. And maybe there's someone here this morning who has never come to realize that you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been raised in the church. Maybe you've heard many sermons. And maybe, though, you're understanding that you need to come truly to him, bowing before his lordship, committing your life to him, trusting in his sacrifice and his work on your behalf, and asking him to give you new life in his name, and he answers those prayers. May you turn to him and find life. But this message applies to Christians as well. We know you've probably heard the analogy of the Christian life compared to a ship sailing into a harbor through stormy seas. I see that in my mind's eye. I think of that as a picture of the Christian kept by God in this earthly pilgrimage. Our sails might be tattered, 
our hold might be filling with water and has lots of leaks. We might have had to toss most of the cargo overboard throughout our journey, but God keeps us from sinking and promises to bring us to our appointed harbor with him, our home in heaven. But to press that analogy, we might say, what keeps us going? It's the wind in our sails that continues to carry the ship. And that wind, we could say, is the powerful work of the Holy Spirit to keep us with our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, trusting him alone from beginning to end of our earthly pilgrimage with him. Thanks be to God that he is the one that does that work. And so we say in the hymn, in the words of the hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Amen. Father, thank you for the certainty you give us in such a great Savior. We are weak, you are strong. We are dull, and you give us life. We are failing in many ways and distracted by many things, and yet you carry us throughout our lives. May you help us to renew our mind set on Jesus Christ this week and this day. To him be all the glory. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.